Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode, I'm going to lay out pathways for students to follow, and then the teachers become the coaches, the facilitators, the supporters that ultimately we want them to be. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well and staying calm, safe, and healthy. This episode is for students, teachers, parents, and educators interested in how we are transforming our schools to become places where students go to learn by working on interesting projects that contribute to solving the biggest issues facing our planet. My guest today is a lifelong education professional with extensive experience in leading transformative education projects involving school, district, state, and university partners. Using a collaborative approach, he has worked with thousands of teachers and administrators to continually improve teaching and learning practices in classrooms across the world. I'm thrilled to introduce you today, Trevor Soponis, founder and chief learning officer at the Sustainable Learning Projects, an organization dedicated to transforming education for students and educators. His doctorate from New York University examined the impacts of innovative environmental education programs while proposing a unique system to better support the design and implementation of sustainable ecological learning in K-12 education. During our conversation, Trevor shares how he partners with teachers, schools, and districts to design innovative project-based learning experiences that allow students to make a meaningful impact on people and the planet. We dive into two examples of sustainable projects, Project Ocean Harvest and Project Student Voice. And together, we unpack how, through collaboration, connection, and contribution, students learn, build skills, solve real-life problems, and create work they want to share with their local and global community. We talk about how project-based learning experiences enable teachers to become the coaches, facilitators, and supporters that we want them to be, so they can create the next generation of lifelong learners. We also reflect on how parents, during their distance learning experience, are realizing how little we are expecting from the children at school and what boredom really looks like. Tune in to learn from an innovative leader who wants to change the fundamental learning experience for every learner in the world, where each and every one of them has the authority and autonomy to direct their own learning journey. Let's dive right in. Hello, Trevor. Welcome to Impact Learning. 
Marina, thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast and I love what it's all about. So it is an absolute pleasure to be here. Let's start with your childhood. What is uh, your favorite memory related to learning? My favorite memory related to learning, I think the first time I really got engaged in a school classroom was Mr. Stevenson's fourth grade ecology lessons. And I remember looking at pine cones. I remember looking at animals. I remember being outside. I remember doing stream ecology. I remember being outside in the world and learning about the animals and nature all around us. And that was really formative for me. And then I also remember by the time I got to high school, I was really disengaged in most of my classes and my biology was no different, but my biology teacher gave me extra credit. It was available to anyone in the class to be able to watch the NPR show, Marty Stauffer's Wild America. And so for really an entire academic year, I watched a television show just all about America, all about wolverines, all about birds, all about seals, all about different animals. And it was one of the most impactful things that ever happened academically for me. And yet it really only counted as an extra credit, as an extracurricular activity. And so I've thought about that distance between what we do in school and what we do outside of school for a really long time. Mm -hmm. How was your experience overall with high school and being in the classroom? What did you think back then as a student? I was fairly angry in classes like math. It did not make sense to me why I was trying to solve a problem where the answers were already in the back of the book. Even when I was 15, I realized that there were a lot of problems that we didn't have answers to and we should be focusing our time there. So I was a rule follower and I was a fairly good student, uh, a mostly B student. I felt the clutches of authoritarianism and compliance enough to do what the society at large did. So it was fine. And I was always frustrated that I couldn't delve into my own interests. I was always frustrated that we were trying to find answers to questions that we already knew the answers to. And that things that I was interested in at the time, comic books, video games, sports, were really relegated to the sidelines when that could have been the focus of my learning journey. Mm -hmm. What did you decide to study? I was always considered myself a writer, a creative writer. And so I was an English major and my undergraduate degree. And I remember pretty much everyone saying, oh, you're an English major, so you want to be a teacher. And actually, I did want to become a teacher. I had some interesting teaching experiences when I was still in college. I got a lot out of that. I immediately after college moved to New York City and worked for the Harlem Children's Zone, a really uh, world famous effort in Harlem to rewrite kind of the the educational journey for all students there. That was really impactful. And after a few years of trying out a number of different things, I applied for the New York City Teaching Fellows. And so I loved, I've always loved teaching and I've always loved writing. How was your experience as a teacher? So I had a really fascinating and unusual experience. So I was a member of what was called a mid-year cohort of the New York City Teaching Fellows, which means that I started my teaching career on February 1st, right smack dab in the middle of the year at the beginning of second semester in a alternative high school in Queens, New York. I have a lot of fond memories. It's called Middle College High School, still there, still doing well. 
It's one of the oldest alternative high schools in the New York City system. And so it was set up for students that were identified as in danger of failing out. I was brought in as a journalism teacher where I published an uncensored student newspaper and also taught career education. So there was a very robust internship program as well. What was my experience like? It was absolutely, not surprisingly, overwhelming. So I had to teach all day and then go to academic coursework at night as part of the program in order to become certified. Not understanding a lot of the differences around what the alternative education movement looked like. And so learning as fast as I could about the small schools movement and the Coalition for Essential Schools that was really powerful in New York at that time. And of course, falling on my face uh, just as much as every new teacher does and struggling and still understanding that the uncensored student newspaper that I published alongside students three times a, a semester, six times a year was a profoundly transformational learning experience for everyone involved. What is the small school movement for those who are not familiar? In the 90s, Certainly encouraged by funding from Bill Gates, there was a movement that said if students knew the adults better in schools, they would do better. And there is certainly some insight and some research that backed that up. And so a lot of what happened in New York City at the time was they were closing, for instance, a school of 4,500 students that had four floors and they would reopen them as four separate schools with you know, 1,200 students each roughly. And so as someone who worked both A, in a small school, and then after I left the classroom full time, I did a lot of mentoring work and a supplemental education work and actually worked with some of the schools that had been closed and then reopened. There was a lot of valuable learning in the small schools movement. And I think that personal relationships, you know, I think that really set the stage for the SEL movement that is rightfully taking place now. But unfortunately, like so many innovations in education, we walk away from it before any sort of lasting change ends up occurring. So I think there were a lot of valuable lessons from that. And like everything else, we just seem to, after five or six years, say, all right, on to the next thing, which I think is always the wrong thing to do. Yeah, because uh, change and transformational change takes time. That's absolutely right. Time, patience. Sometimes it doesn't happen the way we think. It happens through small movements and small initiatives versus top-down, and the small progress takes time. You couldn't be more right, and what is so frustrating is that the systems we have set up don't support that, right? The average public school principal, particularly in urban areas, lasts less than four years. The superintendents, you know, really average five or six years before moving down the road to their next superintendentship. And so when you have those types of systems, that lasting change isn't going to take place. And so what do we see? We see teachers who sit on the sidelines and wait out the most recent change. And to be clear, I don't blame teachers for that. When, once you've been there for 20 years and you've seen four wide-scale initiatives that have come and gone that haven't brought the change that they've promised, that's learned behavior and, yeah. and certainly makes sense. It's the systems in which it exists that creates that resistance to, to fundamental change. Yeah. You did your master's in secondary education. How did you decide that? 
One of the best things about the New York City Teaching Fellows Program is you don't have to decide. You are accepted directly into the program and you are assigned a subject area as well as a grade level. So I was assigned secondary English education and that is exactly what I took. Luckily for me, that is exactly what I wanted to pursue, but I did not have to think long and hard about it. It was just part of the process. And I was lucky enough to find a position where I was actually able to teach in my subject area. And so I went ahead and pursued my master's in that way. When did you decide to pursue a PhD? So I did classroom teaching for three years at Middle College High School. And at that point, I felt as if I had learned a lot. And at the time, it felt right to try something else. And so I transitioned into from in-school to out-of-school support. So I ran a mentoring program that partnered about 500 students with industry professionals in New York City. So it partnered with about 10 high schools and 10 private companies, including Lehman Brothers, historically enough. And that was fascinating. And again, so I, I really transitioned to the out-of-school time. So I also supported a wonderful organization called Sponsors for Educational Opportunity, which now has offices in New York and San Francisco and supports public high school students in enrichment and supplemental education activities. So what that means is that every Saturday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., I taught English, specifically vocabulary and writing and grammar to New York City high school students in order for them to get into not only colleges, but the best colleges in the country. Just a wonderful culture around how they approached education and they're still in operation and I still love their work. I also, at that same time, started doing summer enrichment activities through the Nature Conservancy and taking students out on month-long internship programs during the summer where students would get a paid internship to engage in conservation projects all around the country. And so from that variety of experiences, I just wanted to learn more. I just didn't understand where does inertia in the school system come from? What are really the alternative models? If we, you know, listening to your podcast and paying attention to any social media, we have a system in which it is widely accepted is preposterous right? We have 45-minute periods. Why? Well, we've always done it that way. We have different disciplines. Why do we do that? I don't know. It's always been done that way. Should we have interdisciplinary learning? We sure should. Well, we can't do that, right? Why do we segregate by ages? Well, it's always been done that way. You know, why do we have mandatory courses at every level from K-12? There's just so many questions that didn't make sense. And so, Given the variety of experiences that I had, I said, you know, I really want to investigate all these questions that I have. And so I was lucky to be accepted into NYU and focus on teaching and learning with a specialty in urban education and how all of this, how, how does this puzzle fit together? And you were able to bring the, the aspect of ecological and environmental education programs, which I found quite unique. I did. And I feel really... You know, that was a passion project for me. I remember when I was probably nine years old and I said to my parents, we need to start recycling. And we used to drive a few miles, you know, once a month to a place where, you know, it's so different now, certainly here, where, as I said, in Portland, where it's curbside recycling, we had to drive a number of miles and the recycling place was open once a month, staffed solely by volunteers. And so the recycling movement was certainly in a different place then. But 
we can have the educational debate as much as we want, and we are closely approaching an uninhabitable planet for the number of people that we currently have on it. I certainly don't like to be an alarmist, and whether we're looking at soil health, and they say, you know, we roughly have 60 harvests left of topsoil. So how are we going to get topsoil? The ocean warming that is most likely going to initiate the next ice age and really decimate the fishing industry that so many of our world cultures survive on for the main source of their protein. I mean, just the the fundamental building blocks of our ecological reality are falling down in 2021. And so we need to address that. Students want to address that. And I think we should give them the opportunity to do that in a meaningful way. What were you planning to do after you completed your PhD research? Rest, of course. Rest. <laughs> yes. <okay. laughs> For a very, very long time. It's so funny. There's, there's an element where I hadn't fully thought that through. I had been working for an educational nonprofit providing technical assistance all around the Pacific Northwest. And what that means is, you know, if a school needs help with literacy instruction, I go out there and design and deliver professional development. I set up professional learning communities. I had done kind of some research for what does the teacher pipeline look like? And, you know, the day that I finished my PhD was you know, they sent me a notification that it had been accepted and I really got to wash my hands of the whole thing. And I, I looked back on it and I said, what am I going to do with this? Right. And my research was really around looking at an environmental education program. And I asked two questions. I asked them, does this environmental education program impact their environmental attitudes? And why, if, if it does, why is that? And the answer to that question was, yes, it does impact their environmental attitudes, which was a very exciting thing to notice that extended periods of time in nature does, in fact, impact this age group. And then the second was, why does it impact them? The answer was because of their direct relationships with passionate individuals working towards causes larger than themselves. This was research on a similar environmental education internship program that got urban students out into nature to work on these projects. And the question became, does it work? And yes, it does. And how does it work? And it really was about the relationships. It was about immersion. And it was about being connected to issues larger than themselves. And so I decided perhaps foolishly, not too long before the pandemic started, that I was going to start an educational company around attempting to provide that for students all over the world. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found very unique, and I'm very curious to know, so you have experiences. It's almost like you designed these experiences to be able to do what you do today. So you worked with students. You work with teachers. You did project-based activities, nature and ecological, you know, related educational programs. How did these different, I guess, career movements come about? What was driving some of these changes? Because really, you almost like design exactly what you had to experience to be where you are today. <laughs> I'm laughing, Maria, because retrospect, everything seems so much clearer than when you're going through it. And so how did it come about? 
let's start with the project-based element, right? The, the project-based elements really came from my teaching experience. When students had the opportunity to publish something multiple times over the course of a semester, and it was open-ended, right? They could write whatever they want, and they produced amazing work. That was my experience as a teacher, that if you provide opportunities for students to explore their own interests and guide them to the best of your ability through a series of critical questions and coaching, that amazing things can happen. And so that's really provided the foundation of a lot of the work that I'm doing now. To the second part of your question, I think what's missing right now in so much of education is a lack of impact for the students that are actually participating in the learning and the impact for their immediate community. And so I'm just gonna dive into one of the projects that I'm currently doing because I got a wonderful email about this just yesterday. So I'm working with a district in Alaska to rewrite their biology curriculum into a marine biology curriculum. And so being that it is an island off the coast of Southeast Alaska, it makes sense. They're a traditional fishing village, traditional indigenous community where that they've been doing this for hundreds of years. And yet their biology course has never actually focused on studying the ocean that has surrounded them. But more than that, what we're doing right now is we are at the heart of this marine biology course is the attempt to have students lead the cultivation of seaweed and shellfish in order to first and foremost feed their community and then B, become an economic stimulus for their community. So the particularly the seaweed cultivation is a burgeoning industry in the state of Alaska. It has wonderful regenerative elements towards both people, right? It is an economic driver. Um, when you're looking at, you know, year six of the salmon and herring harvests being in serious decline, you need to start diversifying your economy or these indigenous communities will no longer have an economy on which to exist on these islands. And so what we're doing is we are setting up seaweed and shellfish cultivation so that students lead the production of food and ultimately an economic product for their community. And it is that type of tangible impact that I want schooling to have, right? Students eat things they should be making their own food. We use power to power the buildings. Students should have a hand in designing and implementing that. There is such a removal between the learning process and impact that has a long historical roots that we really need to move away from. And I, so I think that's a good example of what impactful, immediate education can look like. Perfect. Let's use this example to unpack different aspects of your work. So first of all, the organization you have founded and you are the chief learning officer is called the Sustainable Learning Project. And the project now you're talking about, what is the name of this project? So the Sustainable Learning Projects is my company and it is plural. And so that it is an umbrella organization where there are going to be multiple projects in operation at any one time. So this is specifically Project Ocean Harvest that focuses on the cultivation of seaweed and shellfish as regenerative effort both for the community and for the planet. How does a project like that, which is very unique, how did it start? Relationships, of course, relationships. And what I mean by that is I had been to 
the island a number of times and, and been there as a literacy support. And the minute I got there, based on my knowledge and my passion in ecology, I just looked around and I said, are you, are you growing seaweed? There's enough of an industry up there that they say, no, we're not. We're, you know, we're thinking about it, but how would a school do that? And so we're, you know, figuring it out collectively and collaboratively together of how to set up projects and project-based learning that have tangible, beneficial outcomes that are really beyond dispute, right? There's just, it's very difficult to argue around how beneficial that can be. Now, how are we doing that? So we're going to do some they have a scuba diving program, so we're going to do some underwater surveying and actually demonstrate to the world the ways in which uh, seaweed and shellfish farms are, in fact, regenerative and help the surrounding area around species regeneration, which is an enormous issue right now. The second thing we're going to do, obviously, water quality monitoring. So how does this impact the water quality around the island? Mm-hmm. What are students learning What activities are they involved in? As a project-based classroom that is aligned to the next generation science standards, we start with phenomenon. So instead of, instead of a biology curriculum that might ask, you know, what are cells made out of? We're starting much more place-based. And so we're saying, what lives on the shoreline of our island? And so they're going out into their local community and saying, Look at this intertidal zone, which is one of the most ecologically productive areas in the world. What actually grows here? What do we know about it? Let's look at it when the tide is high. Let's go back out when the tide is low. Let's go ahead and measure this. How many species of seaweed are actually here, right? And so we have designed the curriculum around the seaweed. And so we have the question, how many species of seaweed currently live in the intertidal zone? What are the different species of seaweed? And so there are currently... Three species out of 10 that are commercially cultivated in the state of Alaska. The remaining seven species of seaweed haven't been shown to be able to basically survive, or no one's. And as a burgeoning industry, if you're a small farmer, you're not going to take a chance on saying, boy, I hope this black seaweed, you know, actually does grow out here. And so what we're doing is we are actually going to be the engine of research and development, meaning we're going to start at the school level. We're going to go out and collect the seaweed. We're going to go out and seed um, in our laboratory. Then we're going to go out and plant it. And then we're going to provide data and measurement around this is how well it's growing. And then we're going to go ahead and present that out to stakeholders all around the state to say, These are our recommendations for the next generation of seaweed farmers. This is what grows best here. The, these are our theories and hypotheses. Here is our series of research that we're going. Please come visit us. Let us share. Let's get on webinars. Let's talk with scientists who's already doing this. Let's get internships. Let's make connections with higher education to get multiple degree programs aligned to this, both at the associate, the bachelor's, and the master's and PhD level. Right. Let's get all these things aligned so that students can be engaged in learning that directly impacts them, their community and the planet without ever having to leave home. I want to know what uh, the role of the teacher is, because this is clearly different than just teaching a very specific curriculum in the classroom. The teacher is the key collaborator. And so 
He actually just sent me the good news is that the, even during COVID, he was able to seed and grow some seaweed in the laboratory. He just planted it and he just showed me some pictures last night. It's grown about almost two feet in the last month, which is just wonderfully, wonderfully encouraging to have after all this work, particularly during this year, to have tangible evidence that the work that we're doing is, is working. The design principle that I really work with is I didn't do a very good job unless I reduced the amount of work that a teacher has. And so what I mean by that is I am collaborating with a teacher to provide a curriculum that is ready for them to implement and really provide multiple options for them to say, do you need an additional lab in order to demonstrate the way in which DNA works? Do you need an additional audiovisual resource to demonstrate the way that chromosomes work. And so really provide an additional support level that I believe all teachers should have, to be clear, to have a, a critical thought partner to, over the course of a year, create and collaborate to create this place-based, project-based curriculum that have multiple opportunities for them to differentiate and present different content based on what their students are teaching them and telling them and what they're most interested in. What do students enjoy about the project? The feedback that we've gotten so far celebrates and acknowledges the importance of having a place-based curriculum. You know, the, the reality is very possible that some of these students could graduate high school and begin seaweed farming immediately. This is a community that already has the boats, has a lot of the physical infrastructure. And so they, if they actually have the know-how of how to go ahead and, and seed, you know, collect, spawn, and plant this, and then connect to some of the, the industry partners that will in fact buy their seaweed, this isn't some form of, you know, you're going to need to study for a number of years, you're going to need to get this degree. This is how do you keep this centuries old traditional subsistence agriculture practice going? It's by expanding into what we are thankfully discovering is a truly sustainable and regenerative mariculture practice. What about connection with the world beyond our community? And I've heard you talk about time and space. So how does, you know, the local place-based project correlate with global connection and time and space? Thank you so much for bringing that up, because I think that education is one of the only things that really is relegated currently to existing within the four walls of a room. Side note, you know, I think it's really important to think why are students so disengaged is because they can pick up their phone and be connected to a worldwide community and whatever their interests are, and school doesn't allow that possibility. And so it doesn't surprise me at all why student interests exist where they are. With Project Ocean Harvest specifically, our next step is trying to get additional schools, specifically in Alaska, but ultimately other coastal areas to engage in this and so that we can create a network of schools that share data and share learning around their projects. We're applying for some grants in order to do that. We're thinking about, you know, bringing on a number of schools, say five schools in a year, and then building it up so that imagine if there were 25 schools in Southeast Alaska, all learning around this. 
in order for that industry to really take off, there needs to be a processing plan in order to do that. And so there needs to be the collective momentum around doing this. And so we're, we are, in fact, trying to do this. Right now, I'm, I'm certainly in year one and making sure that it works well at a single school. But I do want to bring up a second project because I really think it talks about exactly the breaking down the walls of time and space that you're talking about. And that's Project Student Voice. I have six schools spread out all across the world that are operating upper level high school English language arts class and having all students contribute to a single publication. So what that means is there's a website right now that you can go to where you can see the work that students from six classrooms all across the country are contributing to. And so the class is predicated on three main ideas. One, choice. Students get to choose what they create and the medium in which they create that. So certain students are writing, certain students are drawing political cartoons or original pieces of artwork. Some are creating podcasts, some are doing photo essays. The one that surprised me, a number of do are doing audio stories, which is, uh, and group audio stories, which is something I never could have predicted. The second thing is collaboration. So the idea is that they're going to collaborate within their single classroom, then they're going to create outside their classroom in their local community, and then they're going to, to collaborate with their class, with their network of classrooms. So this, this is the second time where networks really, I think, are an important vision for the future of education. Third, contribution. In order to participate in this, you have to contribute something. And whatever it is, so certain students have contributed you know, one of my favorite articles is a 8,000 word article on how animation has changed over the last 30 years. Absolutely fascinating. And one of the deepest dives as somebody who likes comic books and animation. Certainly, I was stunned by how much and how wide the student presented their work. I love some of the podcasts. We have three podcasts episodes up right now. One that I think is the most interesting is some interviews around gaming and how it impacts the social emotional health of students who game. Again, as I mentioned, there are those examples of audio stories. So creative audio stories that are then actually acted out by different student actors playing different parts. There's the narrator, there's the sound effects, there's the different characters with their different voices. And not surprisingly, in the year of COVID, there's probably 30% of the articles that are around mental health. One student wrote very powerfully about their own battles with anxiety. One student wrote about what it was like to be housebound and the ways in which they dealt with the, with the COVID challenges in their own home. And so I love and I think it's very important to have these public displays of work so that students have a real audience. How did it start? Because that's a quite different project as well. When I did my initial teaching at Middle College in Queens many years ago, this is exactly what we did, but we just did it in one classroom, right? And so I've been thinking throughout all my studies, how do we meaningfully connect students across time and space? They can do it socially, but they can't really do it academically. We don't have meaningful ways for students to connect around in support of academics. And so I thought about doing this. The technology has progressed to a point where it's not really a burden. And so it's very, right now it's actually very simple. And so I just thought about this and then 
you know, to answer your question most directly, I went to six educators that I knew that I trusted to demonstrate a proof of concept that these classrooms could operate in wildly different places with wildly different specific objectives, right? There's a school in Texas, there's a school in Alaska, there's a school in Virginia, there's a school in North Carolina, uh, there's a school in Colorado. And so all those teachers and contexts are very different. And when you provide an overarching message that resonates, you get movement. And so it's really actually the fruition of a project that I've been thinking about, I would say, for 20 years about how to do this. And I can't wait for next year to really take it to another level with additional teacher supports, additional curriculum mapping, and having really a, a playlist or a path for all students to say, hey, you want to produce a podcast? Great. Here are 10 things, and you have to complete six of them in order to go to go about and do this whole process. So it's really it's something that I can imagine doing and supporting for a really long time. What do students enjoy out of this experience? What is the most, I guess, exciting thing or interesting thing for the students? Caspian, the student in Texas who wrote that 8,000-word treatise on animation, said, this is amazing. I've never been asked to write about something I've been interested in. It's just that simple. We have a system in which whatever you're interested in, it doesn't matter. And I find that type of system to be preposterous in 2021. And that, that's being generous. I think it's completely unacceptable because students can demonstrate standards-aligned work writing about whatever they want to write about. And they should be able to read whatever they want to read. And they should be able to follow their own passions and have teachers exist as facilitators and supporters rather than authoritarian dictators who tell them, you know, everything from when they can go to the bathroom to when they can speak. Trevor, who do you think you create this work for? Is it for the students, teachers, the schools, the parents? All of the above. I think what's most important right now is we need models. We need models of what this looks like, right? And so you mentioned that right now, you're right, I am identifying teachers that are ready for the journey. But what's going to happen is at these schools, the teachers that work in the classroom next door are going to see the power that these models bring. And so there these teachers who are teaching the American Revolution for the 35th consecutive year are going to look across the hall and see what deep sustained learning actually looks like and that evidence is going to be incontrovertible and it's just something that people are going to want to be a part of, right? And I think that the vast majority, well, I think I know there's a sizable population of teachers that are ready for it now. And once the additional group of teachers that might not be ready right now sees the power of those models and understands that these models reduce their work, right, again, to this thing where the idea that, we're, that we are not supporting beginning teachers in any meaningful way with any sort of curriculum and coaching support is ridiculous. And that's exactly what I want to do. I'm going to lay out pathways for students to follow, and then the teachers become the coaches, the facilitators, the supporters that ultimately we want them to be. Mm -hmm. 
What kind of involvement or support do you expect from parents? That's a great question. And I've been talking a lot on LinkedIn with Matt Barnes, who's a really intriguing parent advocate and has really challenged and enriched my thinking around parents. Right now, we're in a, a challenging place with parents, particularly as the fingers crossed the pandemic and its most pernicious effects begin to wind down around school closures. Because the debate is this, most districts right now are prioritizing a return to what was happening a year ago. And I want to be very clear that the vast majority of instructional practices that were happening a year ago were not good and were not serving students, were not serving the teachers in those buildings, and were not ultimately serving parents. Again, what I hope for is that parents begin to see what true sustained learning and engagement looks like and that we can also translate that to some of the goals that they want, which is happiness as well as upward mobility. If we aren't able to make project-based learning, mastery-based learning, place-based learning intimately connected with college acceptance, it's going to be a much more difficult challenge. And I think we can do that right now. And I think we should do that right now but we need to really expand the scope of what we mean when we look at achievement. And I'd start with the health and wellness of everyone in the community. Yeah. And when I was uh, reviewing the projects and the work you have, I also thought about like, what are things that parents worry today? And I have many of my friends with children. They worry because the kids are not engaged. They are bored to death and they stay up uh, after midnight wasting time and sleep because they're not interested in waking up next day to do something that fascinates them. And I have two nephews and I talk with them and the youngest one, this is exactly what he tells me. He says he's bored. He's not interested in what's happening today in school and everything. And so his mom, my sister, is frustrated with that. You know, she's not happy that her son is not engaged. I'm not a psychologist and I have no expertise in any of that, but I think a lot of the well-being and mental health, as I understand it, has to do with being connected, solving a problem, also doing things like the actual act of doing. <laughs> I always say when my brain is stuck, I get up, I stop thinking, I get up and I do something literally because I think there is a way to get out of our head. And uh, when I thought of your work and how, like the connection, the collaboration, I think there is a big element related to well-being and good mental health, especially after a year of what we have been through. You bring up so many good points, Maria. The first thing I want to do is acknowledge that we don't listen to students. So when a young person tells us that they are completely disengaged, that they are not interested in any learning that we're providing, what is it that we do? Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing, right? We say, get interested in the things, right? It's such a preposterous approach to human development. If you're not interested in something, you're not going to do it. So if I were to tell you right now, Maria, you need to learn electrical engineering. Here is a textbook. Start reading. You would find that ridiculous, right? Well, you would say, Trevor, you don't know me. You don't know what my goals are. Why electrical engineering? How is that any different from what we're doing right now in every school in America? 
It's not. And so what we need to do, to your point, is do the thing, right? I always say that internally, just do the thing. We need to stop thinking about it. We need to stop planning for it. We need action, right? And what that's going to look like is a lot of failure. And we need to normalize failure and normalize students changing their minds and normalize in this instance, you know, having students have terrible podcasts for a while and having terrible written products and having terrible public presentations. And it's not, you know, I don't think terrible is the right word, but there's just always a lot of room for improvement. But we have completely switched around our understanding of achievement. So when, for instance, when I was a ninth grade teacher, students would come into my room at the age of 13 and say, I'm not good at math. I'm not good at English. And in my head, I always thought to myself, you're 13, you're not very good at anything. Right? Which of course I didn't say. But what we've done is that school has normalized these things. And the way in which assessment works with grades is we are assigning value judgments as if seventh grade math is a summative assessment. Is it the end of their learning? All of it is formative assessment and saying, hey, you're not mastering these concepts and that's okay. Here's what you need to do more of. Ultimately, if you're interested in. But, you know, one of the things I believe deeply is that once you have basic literacy and numeracy skills, we should allow students to direct their own learning. We have the tools with which to do that right now. And over the next 50 years, it's going to be very messy in order to figure out how to do that well at scale. And that's the right work for all of us to be doing. Yeah. And going back to the point you made earlier, because we're talking about a significant change to what we have been doing. I think your work, and that's why I found it very, very interesting, is that it enables all the things we talk about and it helps to create examples, pathways, case studies. So people, people meaning students, parents, teachers, principals, can see what it looks like. I also believe that change happens when we experience it. You can uh, talk about a lot of the change you want, you want to see happen, but I think the easiest way to convince people who are part of the change is to have them experience it. Like a parent who sees their sons and daughters doing like the project and being engaged. A teacher who sees that the students are, you know, looking forward to going into the classroom because they're going to work on something they like, For, especially with those who are afraid, concerned, or they don't agree with change. When you take them and guide them and take them and coach them through this experience, to me, that's a step towards change. Marie, you just had a very wonderful articulation of what exactly I'm trying to do, right? We need those models and we need to have people experience what that learning looks like, right? We have a very clear choice. We can tell your nephew, grin and bear it, Keep doing things that you hate, keep being disengaged, and here's a bunch of content, and here's the the absolute lowest level of memorization-based activity that you're going to need to pass on to the next level, which he is, as most students are, most likely able to do. Or we can say, what would you like to study? And I understand that there's a logistical challenge once we ask that question. I get that. Yeah. But it's the right question to ask. And not only in theory, it's the right question for your nephew. How long is that person 
going to believe in school, want to learn, and want to read books. The average American has read less than four books this year. Why don't we have a nation of readers? It's because we told them to read a bunch of books that they didn't want to for their entire childhood, right? These things aren't confusing. If they were able to read comic books and sports novels and science fiction and things that they were interested in, rather than decoding and deciphering Shakespeare for two months, we would have very different outcomes around people's adult behavior. We talk all the time about lifelong learners, and yet we don't even begin to value student voice and choice in order to make that a lifelong reality. Now I'm thinking a little bit as a teacher, and I have a lot of empathy because they go through a lot. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we keep putting a lot of things on their plate, which is not fair. If they are listening to you, Trevor, and they are interested in what you're talking about, how do they start? I would start with a single project-based learning unit. We all need to have an initial experience. So design a three-week unit around a project. And there are thousands. I mean, again, this is what the point of the internet is. We have PBL works, right? We have wonderful free resources and supports for how to do that. I obviously provide some support in that way, and so do other lots and lots of other organizations. So you absolutely can, within any curricular outline, instead of providing a multiple choice test for your summative assessment, provide a project with a rubric. And having those fundamental experiences that ideally provide students with some form of voice and choice that you can then see what the alternative actually looks like. Very good. We covered a lot of different aspects and we talked already about two projects. Is there any aspect of your work that you would like to talk about that we haven't uh, talked so far? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think this has been a really engaging conversation around really the fundamental goal that I'm hoping for, which is I want to change the fundamental learning experience for every learner in the world from one of authority and compliance to one of empowered freedom where students, and again, students, not the best word, because if we're going to change to lifelong learners, where every learner, which is every person to have the authority and autonomy to direct their own learning journey. And I'm excited around the work and it's so fun on a day-to-day basis to do this work and begin to see a global awakening that another reality is possible. Mm -hmm. So I think you just answered my favorite question, which is uh, what is one thing you want to leave your mark on within your lifetime? Yep, I'm going to stick with that answer. It really is to change the fundamental experience because as somebody who's been in hundreds of schools, mostly nationally here in the United States, but occasional school internationally, What's remarkable is the consistency of experience from students. We have them sitting in rows. We have teachers talking 98% of the time. We have students engaging in basic regurgitation of factual information, just no implementation around their reality. How does the power come on in this building? Where does the food we get come from? How are our clothes made? What is actually in a computer? 
should we have any understanding of where the things all around us come from and what their impacts are on the global economy mm -hmm. and ecology? So yeah, I think uh, it's an exciting realm right now. Do you think we have made progress because of our experience during COVID? Yes. And I will say why is because I think parents all over the world are gobsmacked by the fact that they saw how little we are expecting from our young people and what boredom really looks like. And then the, the outcomes of that boredom that parents rather than teachers have had to encounter for the last year. Very well said. Thank you so much. It was wonderful talking with you and learning from you. And again, thank you so much for joining me. Maria, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully this was of service to uh, some people who want to think about education a bit differently. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and you took away at least one idea to experiment with as you continue to make progress with your learning. I would love to hear your recommendations for guests who are disrupting how we learn, live and work today and in the future. Please send your email to impactlearningpodcast at gmail.com. Two more things. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can always subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this particular episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidu. Till next time.